Welcome to the world of Rex. I am Marvel A. Rex, and this is my world. It is also your world. In this podcast, we will discuss any and every topic imaginable, from socioeconomic political theory and philosophy to gender clowning to the occult sciences, y'all. It's going to be a wild ride. Strap in. Marvel A Rex. Well, I am a true Renaissance person. I do a little bit of everything. I am an artist, first and foremost, an actor, a writer, director, producer, philosopher, and yes, a cult practitioner. I am an astrologer of over 15 years. I am a student of the I Ching, and I am experimenting with my human design. And on that note, I deeply hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the world of Rex. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world. I love each and every one of you. I am happy to be here to talk about the energies uh, from May 9th to May 16th of 2022. Wow. How's everyone feeling? I think it's a great time to check in with your body right now. And just do a little scan. When we are in the belly of the dragon, of which we are in right now, directly in between eclipses, the nervous system definitely feels it. Our bodies are intensely intelligent, multidimensional, five-dimensional and up things that are taking in so many different kinds of information all the time. Our brain is only picking up on very, very little. So do a deeper scan find some ways to ground. I'm going to give some practical tips and tools on how to ground right now, but just spend some time with the body. The best thing you can do when you're getting this sort of psychic chiropractic energy is to really just slow down and be with the body. More now this time of the year than any other time of the year, except for maybe Scorpio season, which we'll talk about. It's October 20th to November 20th, another hot point in the world. Anyway, let's talk about May 9th to the 16th. This is for all y'all to give a theme. This is big release energy. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to talk about some things. Trigger warning. I'm going to talk about bowel movements in this podcast episode, because this is it. We are having a huge culminating energy on Sunday, May 16th. It's going to be a full moon, total lunar eclipse. I'm going to talk actually a little bit about the astrology this episode because I think it's really important and I'm going to make it very accessible for everybody. So even if you are like, astrology, well, you're listening to this podcast, so you're going to get some of that. And it's really interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit about some Greek mythology. And I think it's good, even if you don't necessarily love this astrological point of view, I think it's really good to just meditate on what I'm going to share in terms of the overall energy that is culminating at the end of the week this Sunday, but you'll start, you'll really be feeling it all week. It's just going to hit that pinnacle moment on Sunday. First and foremost, this week's energy is around release, literally defecation, bowels, like bowel movements being released, like urination. Like I'm, I'm talking literal all the way to the psychic and metaphysical. This is really the whole gamut of release. And we are often in in Western, especially this sort of like colonized Western perspective, 
body odors, body move, bowel movements, the body doing its thing can be a very scary thing. People feel really grossed out or ashamed. There's a lot of shame around the body. There's a lot of shame around things like sweating and farting. And, and I really just want y'all to give yourself permission this week to like be in the release of it, be in the flow of it, find ways to even love your body in the uncomfortability of it. And so this is a big part of what will be illuminated on a psychic level on Sunday. And, you know, obviously for each and every one of us, it's a literal thing every single day, hopefully, um, bowel movements are. But this is really, you know, take a moment, take a moment when you are in an act of release to just like surrender into it, surrender into the fact that you are in a meat vessel and it's powerful and it's a miracle. And also there are these sort of uncomfortable textures of being in the vessel and you can still honor those and love yourself in a deep way. So yes, I am saying while you're doing your thing this week, just love yourself deep. Okay. And know that this process is ultimately about grounding and that we cannot survive. We literally cannot survive without this process. Right. So honoring the sacredness of that is a powerful thing to do this week. Now on a psychic level, so it's kind of easier. It's easier to talk about the physical body in some ways, even though we carry a lot of shame around it. But a harder thing is the psychic ramifications and the conceptual ramifications of what this week is going to bring us. Each and every single one of us this week is going to have a le petite mort. What is le petite mort? It's uh, French for a tiny death. Now for some folks, especially with for folks that their birthdays are around this time or their birthdays are around... November 14th, uh, November 15th, those people are going to be feeling it really, really big right now. Or if you have sensitive points and degrees um, between 20 and 25 degrees of Scorpio, Taurus, Leo, and Aquarius, those folks are going to be feeling it the most, but every single one of us is going to be experiencing deaths that will lead to rebirths. But the death process, as I spoke about with Anastasia, and we will talk about again, is challenging right and not just challenging it can literally feel like i mean it can feel black and white it can feel like life and death while it's happening and and it is good because it is there's an ending happening and it this one this ending is particular and so i'm going to talk about sort of the particular energy or texture of this of this death and this ending it's going to shake out on the world stage in really powerful ways so i just want everyone to know that this is going to be very obvious in a collect on a collective level um, really quick and easy to think about. It's just Ukraine, Russia, that will be really obvious and big, but we're going to have a few stories crop up this week around people who have been doing things or organizations or entities that have been doing things in a way that is violent, forceful, disrespectful, shady. Uh, I don't want to use the word illegal because I have issues with that word, but more doing something for the, the benefit of the self alone and just being like, I'm going to do this thing and I don't really care about whether it has integrity or if it benefits other people. Now we could argue that capitalism, which we kind of did last week, we could argue that capitalism in and of itself is a machination of that kind of energy, right? However, regardless of that, just know that this is the time where people are going to be illuminated who have been really doing things that are dangerous, that are violent, that are uh, very forceful, and uh, that cause direct pain to other people. So there's a big illumination there and there's an ending to a lot of that behavior. And it's a faded psychic chiropractic, what I call like psychic chiropractic. It's like, you're going to get aligned no matter what. 
Now, for each and every one of us as individuals, so world stage is easy, but for each and every one of us as individuals, it's very important to look around this time, especially around the weekend. What are some things that you've been feeling or noting where you're like, ooh, this is really not good? And what I spoke about in the first episode of this podcast, when I talked about releasing addictions, releasing behaviors that you know don't serve you, this is really the week. I'm talking like this is it. This is the week where it is going to be super obvious what the first step is or what the third step is. It's not necessarily a final step kind of week, but there is an ending that is going to make itself really pronounced for you so that you can then begin to take the first, second, third, or fourth step in the beginning of this process of releasing. There will be some irreversible changes in people's lives where they're like, oh, I'm not going back down that road. I can't. Like, it's literally blocked off. Now, when this is happening, again, the nervous system shoots up. So I'm, I'm going to just say right now that my homework for y'all and my medicine for everyone is to be in nature, spend time with animals, put your feet literally in the grass for more than 20 minutes, take a nap in the grass, do things that are super, super simple and that are very nature oriented because the nervous system will thank you. Drinking lots of water and eating more simple foods right now will also thank you. Not a great time to like load up on sugars and load up on alcohol and um, other consciousness altering substances. This weekend is just a time to be a lot more slower and more intentional with how you consume things and how you are literally rooting yourself to the earth. It's like it's like a, it's about absorbing simplicity. In a lot of ways, it's going to help you navigate the endings that you'll either be witnessing for other people or that you will be going through very personally. It's also a really good idea to, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I think about it all the time because I have a performance art practice and I, I've been doing this for, you know, seven years now, basically, where I do often a lot of my performances involve um, what would be considered violence or uh, pantomimes of violence or allusions to violence. And there's a phrase that I think about a lot, which is the I am is violent. It's a very interesting phrase. But basically the idea that you assert, asserting yourself at all is, a, is, is inherently violent. <laughs> Just think about that. Just take a little time to think about that. But I think about that a lot. And I think about what does it mean? What is our relationship to violence? Like, what is violence? Some people are like, well, you can't eat animals. That's violent. What about plants? Is eating plants violent? Because that, that to me, it's like eating plants would also be violent under that, you know, categorization. So being a human is, I think there's something that's really interesting. We can go on a deep, deep tunnel dive here, but there's something inherently violent, potentially, you could argue, about human phenomenological existence. Just the sole fact of existing is violent and that that's sort of a part of our, our nature. But the energy this week, especially right around Sunday, is going to highlight a more sinister, uh, a more stark, and a more intense form of violence, force. Force is very different than strength, by the way. Violence, force, and um, selfish, but like kind of dark selfish behavior. Now, the positive side of this is that if you're looking at this in your own life and really thinking about violence in your own life, just micro-violence too, like do I talk in ways, do I use a tone of voice that's violent, do I... Do I disrespect people without like applying consciousness to it? Like, how do I talk to my loved ones? Do I talk to my loved ones with compassion and patience? Or do I, you know, 30% of the time talk to them in a way that is belittling or condescending? Or I'm being sarcastic, but, you know, is it a joke? I don't know. These are really good things to look at because on the, on the plus side, this period of time can illuminate those behaviors and eradicate them. 
that's like the awesome side of this is like letting go of things and ways in which we are violent. And we don't, and like, I think each and every one of us doesn't want to apply consciousness there or resists applying consciousness there because it's shameful or painful to see that you would behave that way. But truthfully, again, going back to my idea of the I am is violent or, or my thought around it, rather, I don't know if it's necessarily my idea, but it's just something I think about a lot. If we can accept that, uh, that being alive in a lot of ways is inherently troublesome, <laughs> maybe I'll use that word, and asserting oneself in life in general, you know, will cause harm no matter what. It's like inevitable. We all hurt each other's feelings. These things always happen. We make mistakes. We have accidents. You know, some of them are minor. Some of them are extreme. It's like this is the nature of life. It's troublesome in some ways. But if we can accept that and know that and apply consciousness to it, we can really do what I just call basically like damage control. You can do damage control. And this Sunday period is a great time to do damage control and to apply consciousness and not have not really carry the shame into it. There's not a lot of room for shame here. This energy is a lot about cutting. And I'm gonna t- you're going to understand why I use the word cutting. But it's about cutting out the issue. Cutting out the ways in which you are harming yourself or other people. And the, just seeing the violence for what it is and not necessarily dwelling, but just being like, that can no longer, I can no longer carry that with me. And it's going to lighten your load. And there's, there really isn't a ton of room to have like sad feelings about it. Just, just do it, you know? We're going to start first with Thursday. Thursday offers us some clues to our current psychic chiropractic journey that we're on with this eclipse cycle. So these faded changes that are happening in our lives or the people close to us, Thursday, May 12th, please just pay attention. Keep your eyes open. Take note of who you talk to, what events happen, because there's a really powerful illumination around our relationship to our own pleasures, other people's pleasures, physical goods, money, taxes, real estate, overall issues regarding self-esteem and embodiment with an extra emphasis on relationships. So Thursday gives us a little bit of a prelude to that Sunday time. Things will already be really ramping up by that Thursday. Thursday is a great day to ask yourself, is the way I relate sustainable? Am I forging long-term relationships that align with my desires? And remember, you teach people how to treat you. This is a big one. This is a big one for the whole weekend. You teach people how to treat you. So just meditate on that. Now a way, like I've been saying pretty much every episode, a way to channel the high emotions that will undoubtedly be available at the end of the week is to funnel them into artistic projects, artistic collaborations. The artistic collaborations can be a little challenging this week because relating in general will have a high degree of emotionality attached to it. People are going to want to make really big moves or really big decisions this weekend because they're going to feel their the nervous system is going to be racked up and it's going to be like, I got to make this decision right now. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk in the astrology community around timing and making decisions and making decisions during eclipses. Like, do you do it? Is it a bad idea? Do you, you know, and the way I think about it, I think about it in a very multivalent way. Life happens straight up first and foremost life happens this the fear around like a mercury retrograde or a venus retrograde it's like life happens a b if you can time it i suggest timing it i suggest i personally with all my practice and i'm i'm ruled by the moon by the way you're talking to an actual werewolf i'm ruled by the worm by the moon (laughs) by the worm i'm also ruled by the worm wink uh but yes the moon i'm ruled by the moon And I know that decisions made, especially on full moon lunar eclipses, 
can be really there. I mean, they're life altering for sure. But the question is, do I have to, it's, this is the damage control portion. Do I have to irrevocably change my life today? Or can I wait a few days and have more clarity before I'm making those big changes? So I would recommend, you know, waiting far into next week, or even I'm giving myself really like late June to make bigger decisions and then decisions that happen because this is a really quick, like super hypercharged quantum energy, all of May, basically, some decisions will just get made. And that's okay. You can sit with those. But if you have access to controlling the timeline, which again, if you can't control the timeline, let go and let God. But if you are like, wait, if someone's waiting for you to sign something or to have a conversation and you can wait until late May, early June, that's a nice time. That's a really nice time to do it. <laughs> this Sunday isn't necessarily the time, but but things will be revealed. It's more of information gathering, emo- deeply hyper emotional information gathering. So keep that in mind. Uh, art, art, again, I'll say it one more time, artistic, like anything artistic, just doing the art, doing the things that are like flow state where your mind is not hyperactive. It doesn't take a lot of mental bandwidth. It's more about being in your body, being kinetic. This is a great time to exercise, really great time to be in the ocean or in the in bodies of water, exercising or swimming, really beautiful time to just connect with nature. I mean, nature and art, those are the two selves right now for all of the really quite hypercharged energy and very emotional. It's very emotional. It's very hypercharged. Okay, now I'm going to talk about the real astrology. So for all of you who are into this, like I'm about to get pretty geeky. For the rest of you, listen to the Greek mythology part of it because it's super interesting and it does give us sort of an idea of, of the texture and flavor of what this Sunday is bringing us and also really is ramping up all week. So it's really all week, but that's this Sunday is going to be the pinnacle moment. In fact, I would keep your schedules more or less open if you can, if you have the ability to keep your schedules more or less open starting Thursday, that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and really just keeping a lot of space in your calendar for <laughs> breakthroughs, breakdowns, any kind of break, <laughs> any kind of cut, baby. Um, it's all going to be there. Okay, so we have a full moon in Taurus. It is a total lunar eclipse. This means that it falls within a a very tight orb of the ecliptic. I'm not going to talk about the ecliptic right now, but it is basically mathematical points in space that have to do with the dance between the sun, moon, and the earth. Okay? Those are the three basically most important luminaries. I mean, one of them is not a luminary. We live on one of those those little balls or tauruses. Who knows what shape they are? Ooh, flat earth. Let's not go there. Anyway, this is about a dance between those three bodies. When an eclipse happens, it basically means that it is within a tight orb of the ecliptic. It, it is in a very hypercharged spot that the that ancient astrology, all the way until now, especially Vedic astrology, puts a lot of emphasis on it, just basically means or signifies faded changes, big time collective and micro changes. So changes to your personal life and also simultaneously huge changes to the collective in whatever signs that they're falling in. Now, Scorpio and Taurus rule what I own versus what I share with others and own with others. This is everything from your bank account to the stock market, right? Stock market being Scorpio, your bank account being Taurus. It's what you've earned, Taurus, and what you benefit 
through the through the co-earning with other people or through the co-ownership with other people, Scorpio. Scorpio is about merging resources. Taurus is about saying, no, these are my defined resources. They're mine. I earned them, right? There's a lot around sensual pleasure, addiction, and um, just really uh, Taurus in a lot of ways is this like exemplified five senses sign. And Scorpio is the shadow side of it in some ways, which is taking the five senses too far. That's why Scorpio is one of the places in the chart where you can look to for signs of addiction or signs of repression or suppression. Now, I don't want to give all Scorpios a bad rap. They're so, so everyone, I mean, every sign is so, so important archetypally. And Scorpios are here to teach us. Scorpio suns and Scorpio risings and Scorpio moons are all here to teach us how to sit and flow and be in the quote unquote taboo sides of life and to really just like love what it means to merge and really know what intimacy means in a very profound way and feel very deep, feel, feel. this is such an um, intense water sign. It's just such a deep feeling water sign. Now, this full moon, I, I actually said it was a full moon in Taurus. <laughs> I'm catching myself. It's a full moon in Scorpio. <laughs> I mean, it's technically a full moon in Taurus too, if you want to look at it that way, because the moon is, the sun in Taurus is right there with it. But this is a full moon in Scorpio. And one thing I want to say about full moons in Scorpio, there are places where the moon is happy and there are places where the moon is uncomfortable or needs a lot of care and adjustment. Now the moon needs a lot of care and adjustment in Scorpio. It's considered in its fall. It's it's the moon in Scorpio is considered very destabilized, uncomfortable. Uh, and and the way I think about it, with all the client work I've done and all the Scorpio moons I've met, is that there's just a deep level of repression and there's a deep level of suppression. Now repression is unconscious, suppression is conscious. But either way you put it, you're taking emotions and you're saying I don't want to feel. The moon is all about feeling, and in Scorpio it's like I don't really want to feel that depth. Now, enlightened Scorpios and conscious uh, Scorpios who are applying consciousness to their life become these like ultra avatars of emotionality. Like they just really can feel so much and they're grounding cords for other people to feel because they've been through their own darkness and they've traveled through like really a, a, a tough road. Again, they make some of the best psychologists when they are conscious individuals. They just make the best psychologists. My brother's a Scorpio moon. We've had him on the podcast and he's just excellent in terms of like understanding human motivation and human emotionality. It's profound. This full moon in Scorpio happening in opposition to the sun, which is what makes a full moon. The sun is a is directly opposite the moon. That's why it's lit up. That's why the moon is lit up in the sky. This position is not a comfortable position. This is part of why this energy, I'm not speaking about this energy light and easy. I'm not like, great, we're having a full moon. I'm like, this is going to be a gauntlet. It's going to be an emotional gauntlet for most people. Now, for people applying consciousness, for people who are going to spend a lot of time in nature, for people who are going to meditate through this, awesome. The collective is going to have a time of it, and a lot of folks are going to be like chickens with their head cut off. The more you can slow down through this energy, the better, because you're, things are going to come up and bubble up from the depths. That Scorpio is the depths. I like to call a Scorpio like a, like a swamp. So you, I want you to imagine that like things are emerging from the bottom of the swamp that you couldn't see. And now you, all of a sudden this week, you're starting to see things. So this is definitely a week where you could just break down crying. This is a week where you could like, you know, have a moment where you're like, my nervous system is really racked. I need to go somewhere else and just take a time out. Val like validate all of that, honor all of that. 
Again, there's an association with relationships. So I just want everyone to be mindful that relationships will come to the fore in a lot of ways for a lot of people. People might be trying to make demands on relationships. People might be really breaking up right around this time. This is fated, F-A-T-E-D. So if it's happening and you can't stop it, it's happening. Now, the sun in Taurus. Normally I would say, oh, you know, sun in Taurus, happy times. Because Taurus is like a loving, you know, like flower child, sweet baby bull, just trying to do its thing, doesn't really want to be bothered, just wants to like eat its cakes, have some lotion, you know, just like Netflix and chill. That's all Taurus wants to do. It's just like work hard and then Netflix and chill, leave me alone. However, however, this sun in Taurus falls on the fixed star Algol. And now this is what I really want to talk about is Algol. For those of you who don't work with fixed stars, they are literally fixed stars in the sky. They don't move. They ain't no moving. They're just there. They shine. They shine. They shine. Now, there's a lot of really interesting fixed stars in our uh, solar system. Algol is actually one of the most popular. And the, <laughs> the reason that Algol is the most popular, or maybe I should say infamous, is that Algol is a rare triple star. It's got a 2.1 magnitude and it's part of Medusa's head. Okay. So if you look into the sky, you can use your little app. We've all got that little what sky view, find Medusa's head and Algol's right on the top. Algol, the word Algol comes from an Arabic word meaning head of the ogre. There are other English translations that come out to demon star, Satan's head, the specter's head. So there's already these really profound allusions to like dangerous creatures, right? Like malefic, malevolent creatures. Algol is is considered through across astrological studies as one of the most unfortunate stars in the sky. So anything near it can or anything impacted by it is really generally negatively impacted. Ptolemy referred to it as the Gorgon of Perseus and associated it with death by decapitation. So we're going to talk a lot about this. I used the word cutting earlier. So there's this cutting sort of metaphor that, that, that Algol carries. And what, what this star embodies is a, is a Greek myth, mythological story. And that is the story of the hero Perseus and his victory over the snake-headed Gorgon Medusa. So Algol in a lot of ways embodies a battle. It embodies the chopping off of a head, and it also embodies Medusa. I find this all very interesting, thinking about Ukraine and Russia, because this star has a lot to do with war, obviously, battle, cutting, heads of state falling, like literally, right? Literally and figuratively. And I think a lot about Roe v. Wade, too. I think a lot about this Medusa. We're going to talk a little bit about her but about a feminine that sort of gains a power. We'll talk about how she does. She gains a power, which was supposed to be like a curse, but she gains this power and then, you know, gets decapitated by Perseus. So there's just a lot of heavy kind of energy associated with Algol. And basically this full moon illuminates. I mean, Algol is center stage of this eclipse. And that is really that's if you look at any other popular culture pop culture astrology chani whoever they're all going to be saying this is not an easy one and the reason is precisely algal and the fact that the moon doesn't really love being in scorpio okay double whammy double whammy so uh, literally across cultures algal is associated with violence i mean it, th this star has no other connotations there's no positive there's really no positive connotation i'm i'm going to i'm i'm a positive guy so i'm going to give 
my best in, you know, effort interpretation of like how I can see this being positive. And also just keep in mind that this is a lot about developing consciousness in the ways that we uh, are experiencing violence in our lives and the way that we exert violence. This is just like a, this is really a, like a boot camp of like, can I be a better person? Can I be a less violent person? Can I communicate less violently? And just being really honest with yourself. Because our goal is, I'm going to say it, our goal is no bullshit. There's just no bullshit here. And remember, this is Sunday, but it's leading up all week. So some things that our goal is not- noted for, just for the, those who are curious, before we jump into the myth. Genetic mutations, plastic surgery, perverse behavior, deformations, destruction, regeneration, impotence, exercising demons, mind-blowing ideas and thoughts, monsters inside our head, brainwashing, and the shadow side of our nature. Okay, so you heard that list. Just that's going to be some of those things will be percolating and coming up from the depths of the swamp this week. Algol represents the head of the Gorgon Medusa. She was slain by Perseus. Now, this is honestly like when I revisited this myth, I was like, this is such a fucked up story. Like, interestingly, too, because I pay attention to these weird things. Amazon, the company. Yes, I'm switching back to present day. Amazon, the company is running a Medusa ad right now. And I'm going to link it in the show notes. And I just think you should absolutely watch it. It's very interesting. It's like super Gen Z, like hipster influencer meets Medusa. And it's just so strange. But I have to say, because I believe in the Matrix, the fact that Algol is super activated right now and will be activated for another couple years because of Uranus. And the fact that Medusa is playing on an Am- like a huge Amazon ad is not lost on me. The synchronicity of that is not lost on me. Anyway, so Medusa, she was the only mortal, okay, of her three sisters, the three Gorgon sisters. So it's her and two other sisters. And she was originally like a gorgeous, beautiful. I mean, watch the Amazon ad. They chose like a really hot model. Like she's just a beautiful maiden. But her hair gets transformed into hissing serpents in consequence of sleeping with Neptune, right? It's her fault, of course, like classic. This is why I'm thinking so much about Roe v. Wade because I'm like classic bullshit where like Neptune gets off, but she sleeps with him. And she gets cursed for sleeping with him because she gives birth to Chrysor and Pegasus in one of one of Minerva's temples. Minerva is the one who curses her, right? So this is like some femme, femme on femme violence here. This gives her, so she turns from this beautiful woman to having like snakes, you know, jumping off of her head, essentially. She's so fearful to people that everyone who looks at her is turned into stone. We all know this story, right? Again, just thinking a lot about Roe v. Wade, this is very, very interesting to me. So it's this transformation based off of a desire. You know, Taurus is all about fulfilling sensual desires. This is definitely a sign that's known for its sensuality and its sexuality. And the sort of hero here, you can call her a hero or anti-hero. Medusa has a desire. She acts on it in one of Minerva's temples and she gets pregnant. But her decision to go with her desire gets her cursed. And then she becomes this like kind of death machine on accident. So the association that comes with this is is misfortune due to acting on desires, violence, you know, anything that has to do with the head being like, and, uh, gives it a kind of violent tonality to any kind of lunation or any kind of transit, astrological transit that happens around this star. There's just a straight up association with death. And for all of you who know more about astrology, Scorpio in and of itself is associated with death. So death is all around, all around right now. You know, in some ways they call algal, they call it Caput Medusa, and they also call it 
verbatim I found the demon herself. So this is very interesting. There's a feminine connotation here. We have to be cognizant around this time, again, of our own fears, our own predisposition to violence, our relationship to violent thought, speech, behavior, and fear. I mean, this is a really good time to spend time with your shadow and do a shadow dance. You know, I mean shadow dance in a very broad sense of the term. You can go on a walk and think about the things that scare you, about yourself or about your relationships. This isn't necessarily a time to be adding fuel to the fire in those places, but just really doing the deeper, harder work. I think it's actually easier to fight with people, and it's harder to just do the deeper work to understand where that fight is coming from, where that violence is coming from. The other thing that that is interesting about Algol, I said all these things like violence, decapitation, uh, the desire turning into a curse, or acting on the desire and turning into a curse. But there's really something, the medicine of Algol during this week, and the thing that I'm going to leave everyone with is the idea of limitation. So Medusa acted on a desire and, you know, she got totally like gaslit because I mean, it's also like Neptune was totally there sleeping with her, right? What happened to Neptune? He just gets to be the God of the ocean. Like whatever, dude. But when we think about limitation on our desires, which is the theme for 2022, listen to my first episode again. When we think about setting a cap on our desire to fulfill our sensory whatever, right? Uh, Saying, I'm only going to do this. I'm going to set a limit. This is the idea of, of this lunar eclipse. This is the idea of Sunday is like, where can I actually just set a boundary and stick to it? Even with this deep level of emotion that's going to be happening all around me and everyone else is going to be super emotional too. So what can I do to set a limitation and to sit in a state of maybe even extreme limitation and really setting hard boundaries so that you don't necessarily get snakes on your head, you know, or try to, you know, because the snakes on the head mean the head's going to get cut off at some point. Right. And you can say, okay, well, what about freedom? Like, what is this, this whole thing about limitation and restriction? I found a quote that I've been really thinking about a lot, especially, you know, I'm going through my Saturn return. So I'm thinking about it a lot, but it's true freedom comes from having recognized or described the boundaries in which to function. So sit with that during this week and simplify your calendar if you can take time to just feel the feels this is a really good time to talk with a trusted friend therapist do a deep cry you know paint your feelings do an art project to channel your feelings go out in nature and let some tears loose it will be happening on a collective level so even if you don't have like direct drama in your life right now This will be happening in the air around you. We are not disconnected from other people and we are not disconnected from the globe. So just taking good care of yourself this week and channeling and and not even just channeling, but transforming the energies that will be deeply present by the end of the week. And they will be really hot, heavy, emotional, a little bit of goth vibes. This is definitely some like goth energy here. And listen to my episode with Anastasia about death because I think doing any kind of work around loss, death, endings will be really helpful to just buoy yourself through this time. And know that this is one week in the year. There will be sort of a repeat happening in Scorpio season. But, you know, this is a week to just kind of honor the intensity of it and be in the intensity of it and love your shadow side. Because the funny thing about loving your shadow side is that the definition of a shadow is that it's not in the light. But the moment you apply consciousness to it, 
it's in the light and it transforms into something else that's not a shadow. All right, everybody, I have a guest today whose name is Jed Bell. I love this guy, and he is going to share with us his journey, which does involve some shadow dancing. So stay tuned. All right, everybody, we are now at the guest portion of this week's episode. I am hanging out with Jed Bell, and Jed is a filmmaker who started out as a community organizer for ACT UP and queer civil rights campaigns learning graphic design along the way by making posters and flyers, protest signs, and newsletters. Jed wound up combining the collaborative skills of activism with the visual storytelling of graphic design to start making films. His award-winning short films, including crime dramas, music videos, animations, and live action comedies, have toured the globe on the festival circuit. Jed now lives in Los Angeles with myself. I am so blessed to be sharing the same city with him and the same mic right now. Jed, feel free to say hi and it's always a party when marvel is there it's i always have the best time talking to you this is an uh, easy yes yeah amazing. i mean i'm an easy yes guy in general but <laughs> it's a really easy yes oh amazing thank you for being on judd i want to start by saying you know we were talking in the pre-show about transmasculine histories transmasculine um oral histories and I'm just so, so excited to have you on as a brother of mine. You are a trans brother of mine and maybe other things, maybe a trans dad sometimes. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. It felt like that way on set with you. Uh, but to, for us together here in this moment, sharing this, I, I want to really start off by asking you about your journey. You know, we're, I'm a, I'm a millennial and you're, would we say Gen X? I'm Gen X, yeah. You're Gen X. Okay. And so I think it's really amazing for folks to, to hear about your journey um, I think for a lot of folks, just to say this, like I always use the phrase trans people are like aging in dog years. Like there's just so much things are happening so quickly uh, that your experience, you know, even 15 years ago is just so markedly different, maybe even less than that. I'm like 10 years ago, five years ago. What would you say? Like, well, and, and for me, it's been 28 years since since I clearly identified as trans. So that's like almost your whole life. Oh my God. It is almost my whole life. (laughs) So can we, can we roll back just because I'm like the audience needs this perspective. I just really, I really honor your perspective and I want, I want to know more. I'm curious over here. So as however far back you would like to go to kind of set us up with the life of Judd. I'm so interested. Well, I mean, the place I usually start is that um, Leslie Feinberg's book, Stone Butch Blues came out. Are you familiar with that? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so it came out in the 90s, and I thought I was just a butch dyke, and um, so were a lot of my friends and some of my lovers, and I was doing ACT UP and living on the East Coast in Maine at the time, and um, we all read the book, and uh, a bunch of my friends, including a bunch of my bush friends, were like, yeah, I don't, this, that book was amazing, but of course I didn't relate to it, and I was like, what? (laughs) You mean they loved the book, but they didn't relate to the main character, basically. Right. They didn't relate right. to the main character. And so, sorry, I, not everyone's read that book, but it's it's one of the um, probably even still now most widely read um, narratives. It's like an autobi- autobiographical novel about a, a trans masked person who transitions like in the fucking, I don't know, 50s or 60s. I think it's 50s. Yeah. Late 50s. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the book is set in upstate New York in the 50s. Um, so anyway. I was like, you didn't, with these friends, I was like, you didn't feel like you were reading your own diary. (laughs) And they were like, no. 
I felt like I was reading your diary <laughs> and um, a kind of a chill went down my spine, what, both reading it and then hearing this. And I realized like, not everybody feels this way. <laughs> yeah. What, <laughs> this year is is, not... what year is this to place everybody? Which uh, is... That would have been in like 1992, 1993. Okay. I was born in 92. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So you were yeah. living in Maine and hanging yeah. out with mostly, was it mostly butch folks or just like les, just queer queers. women? And queer all the queers. Um, you know, there's the, the biggest city there is 60,000 people, all the queers and a lot of the straights, all the alternate queers, everybody, punk rock, we all hung out together. You wow. hung out with every kind of kick-ass and marginalized person because there weren't enough of us to like be in different silos. So, so it's sort of like, I, that's what made me realize that the way I felt wasn't on some level just what it feels like to be a human being mm. and, and, and not even what it felt like to be a butch human being. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that it was something, a, a smaller group of people that, and that I didn't know anyone else in that group of people in, wow. at that moment. And, you know, here I was in this community I had finally made for myself. And it was like, you got to start again. again. You're like alone again. Whoa. Yeah. And the, but the weird thing is, it's like, that's what made me realize I am what we called back in the day, a transsexual mm. because I, I realized everybody else wasn't. Right. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a sort, sort of like realizing something about yourself and sort of realizing just something about absolutely everybody, but yourself like, Oh, you don't feel that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. What the hell must that be like? <laughs> This is how I felt in high school, like profoundly. I was just like, what are you? Yeah, very, very, um, almost like my whole four years in high school was almost like being at an aquarium or being at a zoo where it's like, I felt very much like I I was, but but like a mimetic zoo. Where it's like the glass were you on? Yeah, exactly. No, that's the point is like, I think I was on both sides. You know, it's both sides of the glass. <laughs> it's like, the view, who is the viewer? Who Who is the maker? But it was both. It was really both. Anyway. So I, wow. I, can, I can relate. Yeah. To that Another sidebar is I once heard a young trans woman who I think was um, dyke identified was saying like, t- she'll be talking to straight people and they'll be like, well, how do you have sex? And she looks at them and is like, how do you have sex? <laughs> <laughs> like, if you have to ask that question, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How can it be that different? Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and like, how can you be that? unimaginative right <laughs> and, and no who's the I poor person that. you're having sex with you know yes oh ooh, don't even get me started on that I'm, yeah. I'm like, i think there's a lot of very dissatisfied folks out there um, yeah so anyway that's that's when i started being like oh boy you got you got a you got a whole fucking new thing to like handle buddy yeah. and um trying to meet other people and uh like me and it, <laughs> this is pre-internet um it was not easy. Anyway, I, I mean, I guess I should tell the, the intervening story. So, so the only person I knew like me was um, was a 14-year-old who actually put me on to the few resources there were out there, had found a video made by a German filmmaker that had three different short documentary films on it. And the last one was with a trans guy in San Francisco. That trans guy, Max Wolf Valerio, gave the P.O. box of the FTM International Newsletter at the end of that video. I wrote it down and wrote to that address. Wow. In the mail. That was wow. the only connection I had 
to another trans adult in the whole world. Wow. There was no way to get something like that at that time. There was no internet. It was because Max did that, that I got that address. I wrote to James Green at that address, came out to San Francisco to meet him and decided to move there. Um, Wow. It could be around other people like me. You met, you're talking about the Jameson Green. Jameson Green. Yeah. Yeah. And then within not that long, I was um, running that FTM International Newsletter with James and then by myself and putting that out to 1,300 guys in 17 countries. um, Wow. For whom that was also their only source of information and connection to the transmasculine world. Yes. You know, for those folks on the podcast who don't know, Jameson Green is is the author i mean he's one of he's like trampa he's like the ultimate uh <laughs> transgender i mean he i think of him as my trampa he is 100 percent my trampa i love him so much never met him but i just love him so much oh, I mean, beaming love at jameson but jameson wrote becoming a visible man which for me personally in 2014 was seminal it was just like really it was so helpful and i felt so seen by jameson's words okay um, so jameson green incredible and i love that you I mean, this is amazing. You found this address at the end of a video and it connected. It's like you got hooked to a lifeline, which was Jameson. It's like Jameson pulled you to San Francisco. Wow, I'm loving this so far. This is incredible. Yeah, it's really like, you know, maybe I would have eventually found him, but it was such a a lot of tenuous little connections. And um, yeah, to say a little bit more about James. So he... He was not the founder of FTM International, um, mm. but but Lou Sullivan yeah. was. Are you familiar with this, yeah. Lou Sullivan? Okay, yeah. so Lou Sullivan, who is a gay-identified trans man who died of AIDS, as he was dying, gave James what there was of the organization, basically, which was a mailing list and a roll of stamps. Wow. He said, you're in charge now, basically. And then James helped shepherd that organization for decades. and. Wow. James has a breadth and depth of the trans world and not just the trans mask world um, that is rare, if not unique to him. Uh, And he's, um, yeah, he's worked for all of us for most of his adult life. Um, Yeah. He's a, I mean, I, I, you know, this is a heavy word I'm about to use, but it's really true. He's a true hero to me. Like, I just, I'm like, I don't want to throw that word around, but absolutely with with Jameson, a hundred percent. So becoming a visible man by Jameson green. And then the Lou Sullivan diaries by Lou Sullivan, both two books to really check out. If you want to go deeper into like incredible trans masculine perspectives, just really, I mean, you're yes. Yes. To all of that. It was rough being in your 20s and running this newsletter that was quarterly for no pay and and, and more importantly, knowing that, like, I, I felt at any moment, like a guy could die if, if I didn't get it out on time, like the guy in, who was our subscriber in Iowa, or um, the one in Kuwait, you know, like this every three months might be their only chance to connect with somebody like them. Um, and then it was about, you know, I was working on this about 60 hours a week. And then I also had my full-time graphic design work to make a living. And it was, um, it was brutal, mostly emotionally to mm-hmm. feel that responsible. Um, 
and I, you know, I was burning out on it pretty hard. And then my partner at the time got this little grant um, for first time filmmakers for underrepresented communities. And um, she got it and then she's like, I don't want this, you make the film. <laughs> um, so we kind of made our, I got to direct, but we made our first film together. And um, that was the queer crime drama um, set in a men's leather bar. And by the end of that shoot, I was like, this is, this feels right. This doesn't feel like I'm giving all my blood up out of my body every day and draining it into the floor and feeling worried and guilty and terrified that I'm going to fail somebody. This, this feels um, sufficiently frivolous to be something I could do for the rest of my life. Filmmaking versus you mean the more of the, yes. uh, the, the work you were doing prior. Yeah. Yeah. And I had never um, let myself be an artist before that. I had never considered myself an artist. I was doing des design that whole time, but I thought you had to be born rich to be a filmmaker. And back then you almost did because you, because you people were still shooting on film, film, film when it came yes. to it. I was like, how could you even afford the film, let alone everything else? So I didn't ever let myself think about it, but then digital cameras came out and we got this little grant and we made one. And then that was it. I was like, um, this is what I want to do. Um, I love this crazy motherfucking process. <laughs> the medium is entirely unique. Filmmaking is, a, for me, has just been surprise after surprise after surprise, often pleasant surprises. But, you know, it's it's one of the most, like, riding a rodeo, riding a rodeo bowl, kind of an experience. A description, yeah. 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 This was a pretty beautiful first experience, I have to say. Like, just all my friends in San Francisco that helped us out and the professional people that like took pity on me and helped us do it. And um, every, just seeing all these beautiful people do all these beautiful jobs that I had never heard of. I, I, I had never been on a film set Marvel and I was the director. Was, I didn't even know that I was the one supposed to call action. I didn't know like what a PA was, but there I was <laughs> doing it. What year was this may I ask? 2002. Okay. So it's been a journey. It's been 28 years navigating the like trans awareness. And then 20 years ago, you made your first film. That's right. Wow. It's incredible. <laughs> I want to like jump ahead and be like, what do you, what do you think about 2022 right now? And, and just the <laughs> transness of it all and the filmmaking and this of it. We'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I'm curious a little bit about how San Francisco, I'm, I'm curious about San Francisco. I am curious about how that was for you. I've read like Kate Bornstein's books about San Francisco right around that time. And she does include a few transmasculine like characters that are real life people she knew, but I'm curious about your experience and what it was like and maybe where you lived. What I mean, a lot of people only think of San Francisco and queerness, they immediately think of gay men and Castro, but I'm super interested about maybe some details or memories of your experience in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. What a great question that it wouldn't have occurred to me to talk about. I love that. That's very important. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, so it was, I got there and it was um, mid nineties and um, that, you know, that was a time that, that even younger people may have heard a fair amount about, you know, it was when um, Silas, wasn't Silas yet, Silas Howard and Lenny Breedlove um, were doing Tribe 8, which was a dyke band. And my friend Sonny was running 
the lesbian, the notorious lesbian bar, the Lexington and the bearded lady cafe was going and people were living in cool, like we are fucking FTM international meeting was in this cool ass loft in South of market, which is kind of our industrial area. Um, we're two like hot shit trans guys who were get graphic designers lived and would let us hold the, the meetings there. Um, so I think, you know, it was, um, a time of like lots of burgeoning queerness and activism. And um, these things are always so related to the cost of living versus wages. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it's like it happened in the 60s that a lot of people could live by doing stupid little part-time jobs. And yes. that's why you get this like cultural flowering of awesome rebellion and art and culture and radicalism and stuff. And to some extent that was happening, I think also in the nineties. So we're due for another one. Oh, sign Uh, me up, Jen, sign me up. Yeah. Because it was before the housing costs had done what they've done now in San Francisco. Um, You see, so people had, could have like um, a cafe job or something like that and might have some time and some money left to do something besides pay rent and work. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it just all kinds of beautiful, crazy shit was going on, man. Um, People had more bandwidth to like literally show up for a project where they may not get paid that much or they may not. It's more about the community community experience is what I'm gathering. Yeah, yeah. You have more time and more, more free money to go out and to um, make cool shit for protests tests and make art that yeah. didn't that didn't pay and san francisco has always been that kind of town and it still is it's something people don't really understand um it doesn't work the way la does in that way because there's not the same level of the film and tv industry so um we do it for love for there's for yeah. many of us there there was no other option <laughs> it just didn't even occur and it's it's interesting it's an interesting difference with here that's inspiring to see people sometimes making their living making their art here but um it's harder in san francisco there's less of an industry and there's a different tradition there um yeah. but in the 90s it was particularly um like that yeah um, well that's yeah. when it feels like people celebrated the like magic of the mission and that might have been maybe I don't want to say it was the height but maybe it was the height of just this like cultural like at least the most recent height of this sort of cultural and creative flourishing yeah in the white world and the and other worlds yeah so the um like the mission is a historically latinx neighborhood in in san francisco and still is um still has a very strong uh latinx presence so does the castro which a lot of people don't know i did the census Mm -hmm. um I worked for the census in the Castro and talked to family after family Latinx who had lived there for generations. Um, wow. It's the white, it's the sparkly white people that get the attention sometimes. And yeah, and the mission was an affordable place where scrappy queers um, and maybe especially queer women could afford to live at the time affected, affected gentrification and stuff. And also, you know, established you know cool artistic practices and collective spaces and stuff all that stuff was going on yeah the mission and and you know this is another thing that may be different for your generations and the young even younger people but like the places that first had any concentrations of trans guys 
were of course the places that had concentrations of lesbians yeah. because it used to be that most of us identified as dykes first and later identified as trans guys. Uh, I, I meet more and more people now, younger trans mask identified people who have never identified in another way or never identified as a queer woman, um, which is amazing. But of course, this is how it used to happen. So places like San Francisco back then, and then later Oakland, um, Northampton in Massachusetts, New York, you know, any place with a substantial number of people, but particularly liberal places with substantial number of people had substantial numbers of dykes. And that's where we first formed visible wow. amounts of trans mask people. Wow. And I wonder too, and I'm just throwing this out here as a, as like a, maybe a, a, a theory that San Francisco sort of, because when I think of like the beginning of like trans man um, concentrations in the country, I immediate, the first place I think of is San Francisco. It's actually the first when I'm like, oh, that's, you know, and I discovered like, I mean, again, Amos Mack was working out of New York, which is a little, you know, a different generation than yours even, but no, but I knew Amos in San Francisco. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, there you go. And Amos was in San Francisco, right? It's like San Francisco to me is always this like place. And I wonder if that is because there was a huge concentration of dykes and lesbians. And also to me, the, the gay masculinity in San Francisco has always felt a little bit more like it would, it would be like Faye or leaning towards a trans masculinity or open towards a trans oh, masculinity. Yeah, there definitely were, you know, we had a lot of beautiful experiences with groups of gay men, including the Bears. San Francisco Bears gave us a grant, like an unsolicited grant one year. They were just su being supportive. And wow. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this, Marvel, but there were also um, gay, cis gay men meet trans gay men uh, workshops every year um, where we would show each other our junk and like learn how to flirt in each other's languages and and then you know you'd go get phone numbers and stuff I'm like not somebody who really dates cis men but I would go every year because it was so fucking awesome to have all these gay guys tell me how cute I was <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Jed, you're blowing my mind right now. Wait, there were workshops. I'm like, we need to repeat. There were workshops in San Francisco where Fuck cis yeah. men met trans men. And it was like sort of like an educational, informational. Yes. But sexy, kind of sexy dating thing. Yeah. That's oh San Francisco God. in the 90s, yo. I met my previous partner at the fucking Butch FTM day of dialogue at the public library on March 30th, 1998, which oh, had a betrayal workshop among other things. And like lots of trans guys ending up sobbing. Um, but we were just there to like flirt and pick, pick up like witches and trans guys, you know, who can, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the Eros workshop, those workshops, they started to have them at the Eros bathhouse, the ones I was telling you about with the gay men and, um, like, yeah, so like there'd be a little panel and um, the cis men would talk about like how the prost prostate works and like, um, and Incredible. then the trans men would talk about how their junk worked and people who were up for it uh, would let each other feel each other's stuff and ask questions. And then the thing I remember is, um, I think it was Frank Strona who's, um, he was a, a gay writer in San Francisco explaining how how to do the like look back three times and indicate that you're flirting and we would like role play it 
because um, the gay men's way of using eye contact and body language and stuff is so, so different than trans men's from because of different socialization. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So we sort of explain ourselves to each other and then people would like flirt and get numbers and hook up. We need to bring it back. I love this idea of like, we're due for another moment where people can work odd jobs and make, make do. And we're also, I'm ready for this phase of like having interactive and, and like intimate, but also boundaried and safe spaces to understand, to understand each other. The nineties was off the, yeah. And, and um, like the the right wing is bringing back the right wing nineties. Like the left wing needs to bring back the left wing part of the nineties. Like already. Yes. I agree. I agree. Wow. So I'm, I, you know, I think there's, there's a part of me as I'm sitting here with you, there's a part of me that wants to like, and from my own space, like from my own um, maybe yearning and desire to like reach back into that space and be with you and like walk on the street with you in San Francisco. Yeah. There is, cause I'm like, I never got well, that. We have to make that movie then Marvel. There we, that fucking movie. I love that. I love yeah. that. It's really wow. good because I just see, I've never lived personally. I've never lived in a city and I can just say this really safely and not in a way to, to um, make you feel any way about it, but I have never lived in a city where I've like walked through the streets and been like, people know who I am and they know what I am and it's not a big deal. And I feel like maybe there was a glimpse of that for you in the nineties. In that, yeah, in San that's what I, exactly what I used to say. And I was going to tell you that we, I would say there's like a four block radius in the mission where people understand what I am when they look at me and they're hot for it. Yes. And it's very hard to be understood that way as a trans man, isn't it? Because either we're understood as a gender we don't consider ourselves belonging to, or our female history is invisible. And either way, we're not being understood as who we are and prized for what we are, but I think of like the hot femmes in the mission in the nineties. And it was like, you, you do have a, a place where you are socially and sexually relevant just as you are. And that is, yeah. that is very hard for trans men to achieve. And we need to, I mean, we need to continue to make those, those four block radiuses for ourselves. <laughs> I, I want it. So, I mean, I, I think that in a way it like it, I even got a little emotional just hearing you say that and then bringing that up myself because I'm like, wow, I really, have not like psychospatially experienced that before. I've never been like, wow, I am seen. And I sometimes bring this up in conversation with my partner who's a trans woman because it's like, there's a hyper visibility that trans women have to deal with. And then it's in sometimes stark contrast. I'll bring things up where I can tell that she's having to wrap her brain around it. Cause she's like, wait, you feel invisible, you know? And, and the nuance of that and feeling like, oh yeah, I'm either seen as a cis man or I'm seen, you know, in, in your case, I, I've been here in this part, but at, the, at this point I, I don't, I'm not perceived in any other way than as a cis man. Um, Including by me when I first met you at a transmasculine event. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Like, I know, I just, I know. <laughs> uh, my dad, I will always remember my dad being like, how is your voice deeper than me and your brothers, you know, like that's the moment when you just know you're like, okay. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, back when I was younger, I had this experience, the, the gamut for people to understand is like either. And I think you still experience this, this, where you are either perceived as a man, as a cis man, or they immediately understand and clock you. They see, they, they can clock that you're AFAB and then they're like, you're a woman. And so it's this, it becomes this Right. Those are the two choices for most people. Yeah. And and exactly. And um, 
Well, that brings me to another thing I could tell you about from back in the day, which is, um, so as far as we know, and this may have happened in other places at other times and before us, but as far as we know, my friend Yosenio and I coined the term noho to refer to those of us who were not taking hormones in the yes. trans man world. And um, we were considered like so out on the edge, like just um, like, like, um, like tran when we had the first trans men's international meetings, which were in 1996 and on, um, I forget what it was called, the FTM International Conference, I think, um, held at the Women's Building in San Francisco. But um, <laughs> 400 people came. Like wow. it, it was the first time that many trans men had ever been in a room together ever, I'm yeah, sure. I believe that, I fully believe you that. You see all these guys with beards, like raising their hands to ask the endocrinologist a question about their hysterectomies and it would just like blow your fucking mind <laughs> wow i can hardly um, imagine that's incredible yeah but anyway we did a workshop on like the noho thing and like other trans guys came to our workshop to be like wow man you guys are really brave that's that's like amazing you know it, we were such outliers yeah and um and now like i'm i feel like like such a gender rigid dinosaur compared to to many of the people around me it, it's amazing yeah the gen yeah. z euphoria effect yeah 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 there was like five of us, man. It was, you know, and then, and now there's, there's, there's millions. It's amazing. Yeah. There's tons of trans masculine folks who don't take hormones now. That's a very, you're right. That's a really stark difference between back in 1996. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a different journey. I mean, I, I have definitely have had this conversation with many, many people about the, the different, the different roads we walk as trans masculine folks. And, the like really psychedelic effect of hormones and synthetic hormones and it's just it's a layered complicated nuanced conversation and it ultimately is very individual in terms of what the individual needs um, yeah and, and and something beautiful that i learned along the way is that um you know i was really concerned about becoming like a patriarchal pig basically and and i was like how can you prove that we're not doing that you'll notice some themes from the movie that we made together coming up <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Um, some of my 90s preoccupations. But like, you know, it's like we're gonna we're gonna be white men, and you can you, you're gonna say that that's a simple act that is only something that you were born with, and blah blah blah. And I just don't fucking believe any of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't Same. I don't believe it. I don't believe it's that simple or could be. And we, you know, like I did find that most of my friends, whatever their hormonal status, were super self-interrogating about all of these things because a lot of people who are socialized as queer women, maybe in particular, are very conscientious lefty political people. But anyways, um, what is my point that I'm trying to make? Um, oh, I, I learned but from some of my other mentors besides James at that time um, that you really could have a sort of gender expression that didn't appear to match anything about your political orientation. In other words, um, the guys who like literally drove Harleys and had a lot of tattoos and a beard and stuff were often like the fiercest feminists at the, at the meetings and would would the, the very first FTM international meeting I went to my friend shadow Morton, um, was listening to something somebody said and then said really loudly, 
I'd like to stay away from all that sexist shit. And I was like, I am home. <laughs> Thank God. Wow. It was just, nobody was having it. And, yeah. um, and we were, we would go out of our way to be respectful to Dyke spaces, you know, for, for many, many years, I did not go in the Lexington or anything like that. Cause I thought like I've chosen to throw in my lot here and mm -hmm. this is not my place. I'm not invited, you know, like we, so that was, that was really reassuring and just finally starting to understand people could make choices that made them, that might make them look like so, um, I don't know, just traditionally masculine in a way that I didn't associate with like feminist politics or stance. And then they could have like better politics than me or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, there could also be like bitchy, terrible people who had like <laughs> really interesting gender expression. And, and um, I still see that all the time. And it gives me so much heart, like with you and Lex, the other star of the movie that we made together, you both have such beautiful, smart, philosophical takes on everything about gender. And now you're both, um, both on T um, and one doesn't contradict the other. And that might seem sort of strange to even think about that question, but nothing was, was obvious back in the day when you, when you knew so few people and were just thinking these thoughts for the first time and didn't know how many people had thought them before. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I try to go back into your history, just hearing you. And I'm like, wow, it feels there was so, I mean, you were just like, like almost grabbing around in the dark. I'm just like, yeah. there's, there was so little, there was so little. And I'm, I'm also, you know, I'm, I was born in 92, but I, I, so I was born with the internet essentially, or the World Wide web as it was really coming into focus. But I just also have a hard time wrapping my brain around understanding my gender identity without the internet, because for me, the internet was actually like a, a focal point or like an, uh, a nexus with which I help, was, was coming into my trans understanding. Oh, wow. Sure. Yeah. And I both like, can't imagine it anymore either. And like, it, it's hard to express how analog the world was like me writing a letter to a PO box across the country and waiting for that person to write a letter back, you know, well, and then working at FTM International and being like, I need to send this out. I need to literally lick this stamp to save somebody's life. Yeah, every fucking day, man, it was yeah. brutal. Like the invention of the internet and the concomitant gigantic flowering of the number of and resources of the trans world were just like a huge personal relief to me <laughs> you were know? you were literally saving people's lives in an analog format and you're like my hands thank the internet for this i get to, yeah or, or, i get or to rest thought, you know yeah. so i thought like a lot of that is codependency too which is also a feature of you know a very common feature of those of us who are female socialized those of us who are trans mask eight other ways that I'm just lucky that way with family dynamics and stuff. But, um, but, you know, I also had to learn about that later and like, yeah, it's not healthy to think that your fucking ass is saving the guy in Iowa or whatever. Yeah, right. It's grandiose. And, you know, maybe he's saving you and, you know, you're not that, you know, you, you, you don't hold people's lives in your hand as much as you think you do Jed. <laughs> yes. oh my God. you know yeah. uh, but that was a slow painful lesson mm. wow so you were I mean so and let me see if I get the time right timeline right like 94 to let's say 2000 
to 2000, you were sort of like, I'm imagining you as just this like, no ho, so no, no hormones, trans mask. Do you, you, did you like do the full, what were you wearing? What was your style? I just kind of want to oh. get the full visual. Like, what were you doing? <laughs> I looked like the same way I do now, but with less gray hair, I think. I mean, um, I, I did two hormones. I did a half dose of hormones and then a quarter dose of hormones. So I did hormones for a year in the nineties. Um, mm, okay. And I had really mixed feelings about it. And I still like, feel like I could do them again anytime. Like who knows? But, yeah. um, but I, I did them before I was ready and I, I was in my twenties. And so I changed really fast. Um, yeah. and I know, I know, I know, you know, Six and months. Like also yeah. even apart from that, like well into my thirties, people thought I was a, like a teenager sometimes. And when I took testosterone, like fucking 16 year old girls on the bus were flirting with me. And I was like, I'm 28, you know, or whatever yep. I was like, this it happened was, to me. I had the same thing. I was 25 and I was like, this is not okay. It's yeah, it's yeah. And, and and also they're the kind of girls who like would have beaten you up in high school if they could have. So it's yes. extra confusing. Yeah, like, the PTSD no, comes we're back. Natural like, enemies. And now you think I'm a hot boy? <laughs> like what? Yep. I had that ex- same exact experience. Uncanny. <laughs> uncanny, everybody. Wow. Well, there's another movie in there or a TV show, perhaps. Yes. Yes. Amazing. Speaking of, I would love to talk about the number 12, which is the film that you wrote and directed that I starred in with Lex Ryan, who's amazing. Yes. Do you want to kind of list its journey so far and, and we can talk a little bit about what it's what it's about for the audience? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we can brag about it first and then try to describe. <laughs> Perfect. I love that. Um, route of action. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the number 12 premiered at um, Outfest in um, 2021 and then proceeded to get turned down by a lot of my favorite queer film festivals because of um perhaps what we'll describe as edginess when we get to it in a minute yes, edginess. Um, but it's, it's starting to find its its home on the festival circuit now in some other queer film festivals and in the sci-fi and horror film festivals and it's um it's been winning some awards it won won another one today best sci-fi film at the afraid online film awards um and this this month it's showing in san francisco and toronto and london amazing um so it looks like it will find a home out there this is my depending how you count it my sixth or seventh short and the favorite my favorite thing that i've ever made by far amazing and not least of all because of marvel and lex's performances and getting to work with them thank you with you too and then yeah and basically well, do you want, I'd be interested to hear you try to describe the film if you want. Sure. Oh my about. God. I love this. I mean, you've been, <laughs> I know that I know the background story and I know that you've been working on like special effects and animation on this film for what seems maybe like a gauntlet. Yeah, a thousand time. years. A thousand yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll take, I'll take the baton. The number 12 is sort of based loosely or is inspired by the Twilight Zone series. So it sort of functions like a Twilight Zone episode and it is, an amazing science fiction film that has a very strong trans masculine storyline where you meet Lex's character who's thinking about why, you know, why are people transitioning or why are people transitioning into these clones, right? People are turning into like the the clone models. And I am, I am, I've already, I am the clone model, but I'm also, I'm also <laughs> Lex's, I'm the favorite, but of the world, right? Oh, and I guess I forgot to explain the meta moment, but we'll, I'll zoom out. I'll zoom out in a moment. But anyway, in this world, 
Lex's character is afraid that they're going to get cloned. Tom is afraid that they're going to get cloned and turned into Peter. And of course, this ultimately does happen. They trick Tom by a roofie, by a sci-fi, by a futuristic roofie. And Tom gets transformed into me. And so there is a scene where I am playing with my, I'm acting with myself, which was exceptionally fun to film, by the way. And I thought very emotional. I felt that was yeah. a very emotional moment. Okay. So wait, now or when we did that? When we did that, but also yeah. Yeah, okay. but when we so, shot yeah, together. Yeah. So um, yeah. So one thing I want to say about that too is like Marvel, Marvel's character is so different than Marvel that I did not really deeply understand how different until like I moved here and hung out with you offset. Amazing. Because the character is so like just you know, um, a very self-certain butch, um, you know, like this isn't complicated kind of, you know, just, just, a just very... take the, take the drug. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but in very good natured and benevolent with good, with truly benevolent intentions, because right. he understands how to be happy and he wants his best friend to have that, you know? Um, but it's just, it's just a very different vibe, you know? And then like, I remember the first time I came to your house and you're like coming out in like Uggs and like pink short shorts and a tank top and like bleached, like whatever's. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I've gotten, I feel like I've actually gotten consistently more feminine and fey as I've transitioned. I was way more like very hard, tried to be really hard butch in my early twenties because I felt like that was my only lane. Gotcha. And I'm actually yeah. just very fey. Yeah. And I, I like pink. It. It's great. It's great to feel that comfort with whatever, whatever you want to be and feel like you have access to it. Yeah. But I didn't, I really kind of didn't know. I mean, probably because, you know, when you're directing, you're up your own ass and you don't get to hang out with people as much. But anyway, um, yeah, so we can talk about that moment. I mean, there's a moment where I'm directing Marvel and he's playing essentially Lex transported into the body of Marvel. Yes. The person who's most feared thing has already happened and he's looking at himself in the mirror and thinking i now have my best friend's face forever face body, everything and we shot it in this little um theater at san francisco state because this is my mfa thesis film we shot it all on sound stages at at sf state and we were in what's called i think the black box theater and the whole crew got really quiet for us. And it was a scene with no words, this part of the scene I'm thinking of. Yeah. So I could talk to Marvel while we shot it. It, we could, it wouldn't ruin the take because I wouldn't be talking over dialogue. So that's how they used to do it in the silent film days. You could talk to the actor the entire time, which is kind of beautiful way of staying. Amazing. What a dance. It's like flamenco. That's incredible. Um, yeah, and I had ever since seeing that in um, inter in interview with the vampire, I had wanted to do that, and there's just so few opportunities to actually do that in the way we make films now. But that I was like, that is so much more like getting right in there with you and being with you and really holding you, the actor, while you do it, which is what I see my job as, you know. So, so I talked to Marble about what he might be thinking and feeling as he looked into his new face and it just really felt like it was just the two of us in that room even though there was like you know 20 to 40 people helping us make that movie yeah and um we just took our time we we filmed that shot for maybe two minutes and i wanted to like give you things but also not interfere because 
actors are the magic that makes everything that you as the writer and director could never have thought of or created without them, you know? And I just felt so connected to you. And I think also I must've been looking at the monitor. Mm. So for me, I was looking at your, into your face and talking to you and you wow. were looking into the mirror. Yeah. Camera. <laughs> wow. What a portal. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just seeing the like quantum interdimensionality of all that, which is why I think that filmmaking is actually just like full-blown magic ritual. This is the, the hippie in me, but like I'm just that. like, it is, it's rich. That moment it was. And there's those moments when I feel like, you know, I don't know or care if I'm any good at this job, but I do know that I am put here on earth for these moments. Mm. Um, I'm here to help an actor make a moment like this as best I can. And that's when I feel like all the things I've done in my life, the community organizing, graphic design, having a disabled brother, being a codependent wretch and everything else, being a trans guy, all those things, I get to use every little tiny molecule of everything I've learned to help make this weird, impossible, ridiculous, magical moment. That was really beautiful, Jed. Thank you. That was really, yeah. I do want to say one more thing about that process too, which is that you and Lex, um, who had just met on a disastrous car journey to <laughs> San Francisco for the shoot. Our tire popped. Yes, but yeah. it was actually like one of the most chill tire pops. I mean, because Lex and I were Lex and I were bonding, so we were like, "This is all good." Like improv, we it was like a classic improv class of like, "Oh, this is happening. We're gonna keep going." <laughs> anyway, continue. <laughs> it was amazing, because of course, before a film shoot, the entire world falls apart. Always, you guys were so sweet about it and dealt with it like gentlemen. And then you, yeah, and you got to spend more time together that day than you had even probably expected. Yes. And then um, you parked me into the shoot. You guys were like, Jed, we need to talk to you about the script. And I was like, great, bring it on, you know? Um, and you guys had issues with certain ways that I had phrased things in the script about within the Twilight Zone world about, um, uh, what was it? Um, we, well, we were born in the wrong bodies and the kind of like yes. what I imagined to be like the 1959 way that a trans man might describe himself to himself. Absolutely. And we had this fucking great conversation about that. And um, I love that. And that's like film school, you know, non-hierarchical, re relatively non-hierarchical set is so beautiful. Everybody can contribute any idea and throw it around, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I love that you guys got that you could do that. And then I was able to be like, not up my own ass enough to hear it and have these magically brilliant people playing the two main roles, like the best people I could have ever hoped for. And so we, you know, we sat there and we re re rewrote a few things that night. And then, um, Lex decided, I think the next day that he wanted to say it the original way mm. um, and with a slightly different way of like pretending to imitate your character as he said it. And he did it like in the end, like I wanted him to do it more his way and he wanted to do it more my way. And that would have been fine if it wasn't that way. Um, but the important thing was like, I don't know. I just loved that that happened. That's there's many favorite things about the shoot, but that's one of my favorite things about this shoot is that you guys had the um, 
the smarts and the the chutzpah to to um, to like confront me about something that was that wasn't right to you about it, and it was like a cross generational different understanding or whatever. It's like, yeah. yeah, let's fucking do this. Yeah. One thing I love, you know, just kind of piggybacking off of that story, and I remember that moment, and it just felt it felt really good. You, I want to say that you created such an, a welcoming atmosphere on set. And it did feel as, you know, for folks who don't know about how film sets run, they are generally very hierarchical, but your set felt a lot more horizontal, you know? And I think that was honestly, mostly for the good. Like, I don't think there was much, there was a few things that were, you know, unanticipated, intense, um, uh, because, right? We, we go there, but, and, yeah. 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 There was some intensity in the horror sci-fi set, but um, there was some <laughs> true horror in the horror sci-fi set, but but I think that, the, yeah, the horizontality of, of your set was incredible to experience, especially as my first time really doing proper film. Which um, I also didn't know till much later and never would have guessed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think part of what I'm so interested in, you and I just had dinner with a, a few trans mask folks here in Hollywood recently. And one thing I love about the film set for trans folks specifically, and I want to just kind of vocalize this so other folks can hear it. But I think when when trans people are coming together and when queer and, and, and non-binary folks are coming together to make films, we're not only like doing activism because we're telling our own stories, but we're like building these really like deep rooted communities and these sense that like you have hard conversations with people in the process and you get to know them on a much, like it's like almost like a truncated, like, uh, you know, fast paced speed dating, but it's, yeah. it, it's amazing. And I or do think it's- Relationshiping yeah. even, yeah. It really is quantum because I left that set with you, specifically with you and, and Lex, feeling like, oh, these are my brothers. And also, I feel like I know them really well. There's, of course, way more for me to to discover about the two of you, but I just felt a sense of knowing and of, like, comfortability after that experience on set, which was really just five days. That's right. Yeah, it's, it, it can be pretty magical. And, um, yeah, I made other new friends from that. Um, who are going to be coming to our San Francisco premiere on Friday night, like Avery too. Um, yeah, we had a super, super, super trans crew as well, which was, um, was really just delightful. Wow. Well, thank you, Judd. Is there anything that, um, you'd like to say as we close out the episode or slash, are there ways that folks can, you know, look at your work, get in, you know, get in touch with you or just kind of watch what you're doing? Oh also. yeah. Um, I'm not great at that, but <laughs> um jedbell.com is my website and i swear to god i'm gonna update it this week with the next screenings and the latest um awards for the number 12 amazing um and then the instagram is number 12 film with the 12 is one two um and, and we'll be updating that this week as well Amazing. I will link it in the show notes for everybody if they want to click it and check it out. And do you have, in terms of the film, it's obviously doing the festival circuit. And then do you, are you interested in having it being like having it stream online or is there a, a future sure. that you've thought about or yeah. Sure. That would be beautiful, but it's, um, it's, I think, I, I don't know how often that's happening for shorts, but it's, mm. it's opened a lot of doors to meet people that I would like to work with on other things, um, including some of the people that we were having dinner with the other night. Um, and that's that's a great that's that's a great that's a great thing for it to do that's that that's I think the main thing shorts can do um, for filmmakers that I'm aware of is um, you know win you prizes help you find work and help you meet new people who understand that you know how to make something yes yes I'm gonna throw you a curveball question because I realized I didn't get to ask this to you earlier 
do you have like a log line of something you're working on or even if you oh, don't yeah. want to share what okay do you have a log line to share with the with the crew of just like something yeah. that you're writing or creating or thinking about i created a literal log line for this the other day and probably won't be able to remember it but the thing that i'm working on right now is um a pilot for uh an animated series called hothead paisan homicidal lesbian terrorist and it is a comedy murder show based on um amazing 90s era um comic books about a um queer woman superhero whose power was her constant rage and um went around like murdering and mutilating bad guys like rapists and judges and assaulters and stuff like that and um the creator of that diane damasa and i are working together um on this story and i'm writing the pilot and we're going to go wherever we can with it next it's 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 um we're we're about ready to like show the world some script yes amazing the world needs more homicidal lesbian terrorists in my opinion exactly yes and just like badass i like just like a hard femme superhero person who's not who's also not falling in love with men like i'm i'm like okay i'm good Oh, I'm, I'm in favor of that, but this is uh, this is a butch to be to be clear. Okay, great, great, great. She's a okay. butch bottom though, which is also like it was always um, one of my favorite things about. Her. Yes. Yeah, butch bottom queer rage superhero. There's going to be other queer '90s rage based superheroes in it as well because really, like that's a lot of what the '90s was. Mm, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like rage, just t- was that that was just oh, the vibe. Well, there's going to be the, the, yeah. I mean, there there's people yeah. That was the vibe and the culture and some of the literature that we created. Um, So there's going to be an act up guy, um, a queer nation, Asian butch, um, a gorilla girl from the people that defaced billboards um, about, you know, protesting patriarchy in the art world. Um, There's, there's like going to be a whole crew of people representing queer nineties rage in this piece. Yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the colors already to me are like jumping out i'm just seeing colors on screen being like yeah. look at all that neon look at that look at that spike tip hair oh yes i get to see it i'm showing marvel oh though. my god i'm looking but, at the cover yeah and cats also very important in the world of hothead cats are felines are very yes yeah there's special ops cats there's there's um there's a cat who claims to be hairless who's a mole in the evil cabal Oh my God, there's an evil cabal mole. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Jed, okay, I'm. Uh, let me know how I can help make this happen. I want to see it. I, I'm like, we need some like really sexy adult queer cartoons and animated animated things. Yeah. Yes. We need the 90s to be back on our side. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a final, that's a nice landing final statement for this, <laughs> for this episode. We need the nineties to be back. The the right side of the nineties. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not the right, not the right, the right side, but the correct side of the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. The right wing is bringing us back to the stone age. So we're going to bring them forward to the fucking nineties. Yes. Let's bring everyone forward into the nineties. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Jed, for being thank on the world of Rex. And I would love to have you again. I'm sure we'll find some stuff to talk about. There's, I feel like infinite roads we could travel yeah and there's so many projects i want to make with you and now i'm thinking about more of them so oh amazing yes yes anytime i'm honored i love working with you and um yeah i'm just i'm so grateful to hear more about where you come from your story and also the fact that you're still like i'm creating culture right now like trans men are gonna exist 
queer homicidal lesbians are going to exist in popular culture. So we need thank to. You. Yeah. Thanks, Marvel. It's so great talking to you. All right. All right, everybody. Take care and we'll catch you on the other side. We'll see you next week with the weekly weather. Take care. Bye.